Father, your word tells us that the reason that's true, that we can draw near with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace, is because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Father, the reason we're here tonight, what we're here to remember is that Jesus passed through the heavens by way of the cross, that he was exalted to the highest place because he took the lowest place, the place of a servant, the place of a slave. Father, even tonight we remember the place of a criminal. Though he knew no sin, though he committed no sin, though no deceit, no lies were found in his mouth, he was made a curse for our sin. Our iniquity was poured on him. And Lord, your word assures us, and it's the reason we can celebrate tonight, that by his stripes and his scars we are healed. Father, we thank you tonight for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came here and lived that perfect life. We thank you that he died a sacrificial death. And even now, Lord, we we look forward to the hope, we anticipate the joy of remembering the fact that he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead. And Father, for that reason, we can celebrate always, no matter our circumstances, no matter the condition of our lives or our hearts. Father, you can renew within us great joy because we have this great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we've worshipped that what you have heard, that what we have sung has been pleasing in your ears. Lord, even the reading of Scripture, I pray, has been a delight to your heart. Now, Lord, we just want to spend a few minutes looking into the Word together, digging a little bit deeper to contemplate the cross. Father, my prayer as we do that, as we've had wonderful opportunity to prepare ourselves already, is that you would now come and be our teacher. Father, I pray that by the power and the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would come now and guide us in truth, the truth of your word, because there's nothing else like it. That by your Holy Spirit, you'd guard us from error and confusion and misunderstanding. Father, this is one of those nights where we don't want to leave with more questions and confusion than when we came. Father, I pray in these moments together, you deliver our, our souls from apathy, from indifference, from pride, from rebellion, from anything, Lord, that might hinder our ability to, to see and to savor Uh, the truth of your word. Father, above all in these moments tonight, let us see Jesus. Let us see Jesus clearly as we go to your word. Let us see Jesus only as we go to your word. And Father, in just a little while, we're going to leave, even on this night of remembering Christ's death, we intend to leave rejoicing. Father, not because we came to church, not because our hearts were stirred by songs, by preaching, by anything else, but because we have a Savior who loved us enough to lay his life down for us and then take it up again. And it is in his name and for his glory that we pray all these things, the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seat, I don't know if you may have brought your Bible with you. If you did, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. If not, it's just fine. We'll put the the words of Scripture on the screen behind me as they're being read. But At the same time, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, Matthew 27 is where we're going to be. And if you were tracking just through our time of worship here, you'd realize that that what the worship team was doing as they were reading the scriptures was walking us essentially right up to the point where we're going to pick the story up tonight. Walking us through not the entire story of Good Friday, but, but the moments, maybe even the last couple of hours as Jesus made his way to the cross of Calvary where he laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. And so we're just going to pick up right where they left off in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. And I want to read the story, what we're going to look at together first. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 27 of Matthew 27, down all the way through verse 44, where if you'll follow along as I read, this is what the Word of God says. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor, that governor being Pontius Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium, that was Pilate's Roman headquarters, 
And they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him, Jesus, and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed, and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. Cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. He delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting Jesus with the same words. Now, last week I had the opportunity to watch for the first time a film from 1961 titled Judgment at Nuremberg. It actually won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1961. What it is, in a nutshell, it's a very long movie, so there's no way I can tell you the whole story behind it, but the essence of the story of Judgment at Nuremberg is it's the story of an American judge, an ordinary circuit court judge uh, from here in the States, who was sent by the United States government to Germany in the years immediately following World War II to preside over the war crimes trials of four Nazi officers who were charged with all sorts of crimes and horrific acts in connection with World War II and specifically with the Holocaust, the attempted extermination of the Jewish people that Hitler, of course, instigated. The central question of the trial really came down to this. There was much more besides, but the central question was this, whether or not the men on trial were accountable only for the specific crimes they committed with their own hands, with their own actions, or whether they could also be, these four Nazi officers, held accountable for all of the crimes that were committed as a result of the decisions and the rules and the orders that they gave. Could they be, though they never personally walked someone to a gas chamber, though they never personally participated in the activities of the concentration camps, could these men be held accountable for it anyway because it was their fault or they were accountable in some way for those things happening And despite enormous pressures from all sides to acquit them, actually there were many who wanted all the charges to be dismissed, all of those Nazi officers to go free. That American judge and his fellow judges on the tribunal did in fact pronounce those Nazi, this is a true story, those Nazi officers guilty and immediately sentenced them to spend the rest of their lives in prison. However, being a true story, this is the way true story movies go, there was an epilogue, that final scene, you know, where they throw some words up on the screen and tell you, oh, by the way, here's the rest of the story, here's what happened next. And in the final scene, 
Sorry if you've not seen it before, and I'm ruining it for you, but I'm going to tell you what happened. The final scene, the final moments of the judgment at Nuremberg told us, after seeing these men sent away to prison, presumably for life, that by the time the film was made in 1961, 16 years only after the end of World War II, 13 years only after the conclusion of the Nuremberg trials, those four Nazi officers and 95 others like them were set absolutely 100% Scott free. They were released and never again, presumably, held accountable for their crimes. And it's the kind of thing, when I got to the end of the movie, after investing three and a half hours of my life in it, I wanted to pound my fist on the table and say, that's not right. That's not just. People should not be allowed to get away with things like that. Because the fact of the matter is this, that while all of us perhaps, and certainly the world around us, our definition of exactly what justice is may vary, we all expect it. We all insist on it. We all crave justice to be served. And we certainly despise injustice. And I share all of that with you sort of by way of introduction tonight because as Christians, we understand, or at least tonight we should, that the most dramatic collision of justice and injustice that ever occurred in all of human history occurred at the cross where Jesus Christ died occurred in the events that we are here to remember tonight. Because from God's point of view, what happened to Jesus at the cross was the greatest act of justice that, that's, ever, that's ever occurred on, on planet Earth as, as all of our sin was dealt with by Christ. God, the Bible says, hates sin. He cannot stand it in his presence. And the fact that we are sinners, even in the tiniest degree were that possible, makes us absolutely unacceptable in, in his sight. But yet he loves us and wants a relationship with us. And so in order to have that relationship with us, something had to be done about our sin. Justice had to be served, and Jesus took it. God poured out all his wrath and all his judgment on sin so that we could go free. God's solution to our sin problem, we understand, was the cross. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And having been justified by his blood, we are saved from the wrath of God. So in a sense, what happened at the cross was the greatest act of justice ever in human history. Justice was served. Our sin was forgiven. But in another sense, from another perspective entirely, but at the very same time, the way in which what happened there went down, the way in which Jesus paid the price for our sin on Good Friday to human eyes was the most unjust thing that's ever happened in human history. The way he was treated, the way that he suffered. It was the most as unjust a thing as has ever happened here on planet earth. Because if you simply walk with me for the next few minutes back through the, the first few verses we read, the first thing I really want to draw your attention to, and there's three, sim three simple things I want to show you in this story tonight. The first thing I want you to take note of with me, and if we can together just sort of soak and absorb them, are all the injustices that Jesus did suffer in just the span of those verses I read. Let me tell you again, just as we walk back through them together, what it said. Going back to verse 27 where the reading began, it says the soldiers of the governor, these would be Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers who were known, whose reputation for vicious mockery and mistreatment of prisoners was no secret. It says they took him, Jesus, into the praetorium, gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. If the whole, co whole cohort was present, that would have been 600 men. 
And what does it say? They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe upon him, mocking his claim to be, be a king. They wanted to make him look like an emperor. They wanted to dress him up so they could play games. This is the sort of thing that Roman soldiers used to do. And after twisting together a crown of, we know, thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they began to kneel down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed that was in his hand and they began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off. Now think of that after all Jesus had been through, the beatings and the lashings and the scars and the wounds on his back, and they're putting a cloak on it and ripping it back. You know what it's like to pull a Band-Aid off an open wound? Over and over again, they're putting it on and tearing it off, off of Jesus' back. It says, they put his own garment back on him and led him away to crucify him. And, and there's a little scene where he's so wounded he can't carry his own cross. Simon of Cyrene is, is pressed into service instead. Verse 33 says, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. And the reason is that gall, the historians tell us, was a, was a bitter herb, sometimes poisonous, that had been stirred into the drink. So what appeared in the moment to be an act of mercy, of kindness, just quench his thirst, ease his suffering for a moment, was actually meant only to increase his torment. They only wanted to make what was happening to him worse. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, there they began to keep watch over him. They were only waiting and watching for one thing, right? When's he going to die? How fast will it happen? And they callously just played games at the foot of the cross, waiting for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to expire. Verse 37 says, And above his head they put up the charge against him, a placard, a board of some kind. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now that was standard Roman practice. When a, when a man, a convicted man, was nailed to a cross, they would typically put a board above his head, listing the charges as if to say to the world, if you do that, you get this. But what I didn't know, I knew that before. What I didn't know is that, and I just learned it this week, is is that generally speaking, many times what would happen first is that as that convicted felon, that convicted criminal, in this case Jesus, went to the cross, that sign would first be hung around their neck. So as they walked through the streets on their way to Mount Calvary, everybody could see it, everybody could be warned, and they could mock, and they could shame and humiliate the one who was on his way to die. In fact, by my count, as walk back through just these 11 verses, there are no fewer than a dozen distinct acts of injustice that were inflicted upon Jesus as he made his way to the cross. Remember, all these things we just looked at happened after, after the night before he'd been betrayed. Betrayed by one of his own friends and then spent an entire sleepless night being shuttled back and forth from one sham trial to another, enduring vicious beatings at the hand of his captors in between. This is after all of those things had happened, after he'd been nearly flogged to death. Injustice upon injustice upon injustice. And we look and say, what do we say? That's not right. That shouldn't happen, particularly when we understand who the Bible tells us this was. Because who does the Bible tell us all these things were being done to? The Lamb of God? The Son of God? The Lion of the tribe of Judah? 
Emmanuel, that is God with us, the Lord of glory, the bread of life, the light of the world, the true vine, the friend of sinners. That's who all these things were being done to. That's who was on the receiving end of such horrific injustice. And yet, and yet, as wicked and as vile and despicable as all that was, the second thing that we haven't seen yet, the second thing I want to show you is in the next couple of verses, the accusation that hurt most. Because all of that physical suffering and all of that torment and mockery, I think was nothing compared to what happened in the next few verses. Which is what we're told If I can just read him again in verses 39 and 40, that after he'd been hung on the cross and all these other things would take place and everybody's just sitting around waiting for him to die, we're told that those passing by, just everyday ordinary people, going about their business, doing their thing, no vested interest perhaps at all in what was happening, they were wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God and come down from the cross. Now think. Just take a moment and think about that. Because he was the Son of God, wasn't he? He was, in fact, the Son of God. And you know what? He really could have come down from the cross if he wanted to. He really could have come down and shown them who he was. He really could have come down and brought the whole thing to a halt. He really could have come down and said, enough of this. I don't deserve any of this. And I'm doing this for you? I mean, I know he was totally God and perfect and holy in every way, but he was fully human, the scripture says, and I'm sure in there somewhere there was a part of him that desperately wanted to do exactly, to fulfill that wish. And And note, it wasn't just everyday ordinary people on their way to and from or passing by the cross saying it. Verses 41 and 42 say in the same way, the guys who should have known better, the chief priests, uh, scribes and elders, the religious aristocracy, they were mocking him too, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Then they begin to quote scripture. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And then to top it all off, one more verse. It's not just the everyday ordinary folks saying, it's not just the religious dudes who should have known better. Even verse 44 says, the robbers crucified with him were insulting Jesus with the very same words. Listen. Every year at this time, as we rightly should, we are inevitably drawn to the physical suffering of Jesus. We contemplated, again, what was it like for him to be crucified? And and we should contemplate and consider that to a point. But sooner or later, someone reminds us, or at least they should, that what Jesus suffered physically, there paying the price for our sin, was essentially nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that he endured in those six hours of separation from his Father. Never before in all of eternity had the Father and Son enjoyed anything but perfect and unhindered communion. And what does the Bible say? As Jesus hung on the cross, it says God turned his face away from him. God poured his wrath out on him. God made him a curse. He gave him not just what I deserved and not just what you deserved and not just what we deserved, but what everybody who's ever lived deserved. And there's a lot of bad people in the world. And we are among them. And all of it was poured out on Jesus. But my question tonight is what about, if I can put it this way, the emotional component of the story? 
There's the physical suffering, the spiritual suffering, which was, was easily the worst. But I'm asking from an emotional and a purely human point of view, how difficult must it have been to hear the cries like that coming his way? If you are the Son of God, who does that echo? That echoes Satan at the original temptation, right? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's just Satan in another voice. How desperately must he have wanted, at least in some respect, to come down and call it all off? And he could have, and he could have spared himself and administered justice right then and there. (laughs) But what's the story of Good Friday? He didn't. He didn't. And that's what leads us to the third, the final thing I want you to see here tonight which is at least in the way we're approaching the Good Friday story or the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the, the pivotal, I really want to talk for just the last few minutes about the pivotal question of Good Friday. We look at all the injustice Jesus suffered. We look at this accusation, this insult that hurt most. If you are, which he was, the Son of God, come down. It leads us to what I believe really is the pivotal question this Good Friday. And the pivotal question is this. What kept Jesus up on the cross? What kept him there? Why'd he stay? What kept Jesus up on the cross? Why didn't he come down, especially in the face, again, of such imaginable injustice? What was it that compelled him? What was it that enabled him to see his sacrifice all the way through when in a single instant he could have walked away? Certainly there's the theological, the the doctrinal angle of of obedience to his Father's plan that that in eternity past, the Bible tells us uh, God the Father and God the Son, they understood how it was all going to go. They made the plan before the first human was created. We're going to create these people and they're going to turn away from us and they're going to need a Savior and Jesus, it's you. And so we understand that there's one of the reasons why Jesus stayed on the cross is because that was the plan all along. And and Jesus was going to obey his Father. We could also approach it from the angle of, say, well, of saying, well, well, not only that, but Jesus remaining on the cross helped fulfill several dozen Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament prophets are talking all the time. There's going to be a Savior, going to be a Messiah. He's going to shed his blood. He's going to die. Our, and, and this moment was the fulfillment and the culmination of it all. And those things are right, and those things are true, but something else was in play that afternoon. Something else was in play that afternoon, something of a far more personal nature, at least from our point of view. Something that I believe every single person here tonight can grasp, regardless of your age and however new or, fam- or, or, or familiar you may be with the Christian faith. You know what it was that kept Jesus on the cross? Do you know what it was that compelled him and enabled him to see it all the way through? It was his amazing, inexhaustible, unexplainable love for us. Love kept Jesus nailed to the cross. His love for you. His love for me. Say, how do I know that? Because it's all over the Bible. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. The Bible says 
that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together in Christ. The Bible says that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible tells us, in fact, the Bible challenges us to run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him. What was the joy? You, me, the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God Almighty in heaven. Love kept Jesus on the cross. Love for you. Love for me. In fact, that is the the big idea of the message this Good Friday evening. That while our sin sent him to the cross, his love kept him on the cross. Jesus' love for us kept him on the cross. He literally and he truly loved us to death. And so tonight as we culminate our Good Friday service in communion, as we always do, we always should. And men, if you want to begin to just get the elements ready, as we turn our hearts and our attention to communion, that there are many things we could meditate on, many things just as valuable and as important as this, but I would invite you to meditate on the great, incredible love that God has for you, the great, incredible, infinite love that kept Jesus on the cross in our place. And in just a moment, I don't want the men to come yet, but in a moment they're going to come distribute the elements, and I'll ask as always that you hold them till we've all been served. But as always, you're going to have a couple of minutes to sit and think. The elements will be passed, we'll sit in quiet, the music will play, all that familiar stuff. And I know that sometimes we don't know what to do with those minutes, right? We kind of sit and wait, and everybody done yet? Hope nobody drops something and all the rest, but I want to give you a very specific invitation. As the elements are passed, and, and as you hold them in your hands waiting, I really think, I'm going to at least suggest that there are three ways we can respond to this message. Not my message, but the message of the scriptures, the message of the gospel, that it was love that kept Jesus hanging on the cross. There are three possible ways to respond to Jesus' sacrifice for you tonight. And to make it easy, they all begin with G, and I'm going to put them on the screen so you don't miss them. First possible response for some of you here tonight is one of guilt. You hear what I've said, the message of the gospel. You're a great sinner, Jesus is a great Savior, and it's only by grace through faith in Him that you can be saved. And that churning you feel in your heart right now, some of you, a few of you perhaps, it's called guilt. And it's the Holy Spirit of God saying, you need a Savior. You need to repent of your sin. You need to call on Jesus for salvation. In these next couple of minutes, that's what perhaps some of you need to do. Let the guilt of your sin compel you to Christ, to the cross. Second possibility, not one of guilt, but one of grief. Why grief? Because some of us here tonight, we already know Jesus Christ. And yet, truth be told, you're a long way from him. You've been going your own way. You've been doing your own thing. You've been hiding out, secret sin, holding back. I know everybody comes and smiles on Sunday morning. We aren't all telling the truth. 
The Bible says that there is a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And tonight you may know Jesus, but you're far from him. These next few minutes are your opportunity. What did we just sing a little bit ago? To, to come running home. Jesus, I love you. I, I trust you. I believe you. But I've been so far from you, and I'm ready to come back. Let grief over your sin lead you back to the cross. And then there's a third possibility. It's the one I hope is yours tonight. It's gratitude. It's simply over the next couple of minutes to say, thank you, Jesus, that you love me. You love me to death. You love me enough to stay on the cross. And tonight I simply say thank you, though it will never, ever be enough. So men, if you would come forward and begin to distribute the elements again, let's all hold them together. Don't respond to what I've said. Respond to what the Spirit is saying to your heart. And in a minute, we'll take the bread and the cup. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you tonight that you bring this time around for us each and every year. You bring us to Good Friday where we remember what really happened 2,000 years ago that the perfect, spotless, holy Son of God laid down his life for people like us. Father, we thank you that, that he loved us that much, that you demonstrated your love for us in that way, and that all you ask us to do is respond and receive it in humble, repentant faith. And you promise us salvation forever and so much more besides. Father, may we take with us tonight as we go from here an understanding, a deeper appreciation of what Jesus did, but much more than that, a deeper love for who he is and for what a joy it is to belong to that risen Son of God. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.